Welcome to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com, dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. Serving leaders, managers, and people who will be, helping you reach excellence in your work and achieve your personal goals at the same time. Sign up for the free course at clearandopen.com. With accountability, every stone must be unturned because anything could be a repressive dynamic. Anything could be in the way of you and the truth. So if you take this seriously, all aspects of your personality must be up for grabs. You have to be completely willing to lose any quality that you have. Hi, it's Joseph, and thanks for tuning in to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com. When you strip everything else away, accountability boils down to abiding with truth. The truth, however, can be a bitter pill to swallow, at least at first. When you start to experience the benefits, though, you grow accustomed to the flavor. You even come to like it, to seek it out, as you develop a true sense of self-awareness. So to finish this series on accountability as a teacher, I'm going to share some more examples of what it looks like when the truth presents itself, looking at the results people get when they abide with it, the truth, versus when they continue to resist it. Again, this series is the second session from the Accountability Path 2.0 course, and if you're interested in this content, you can find that at courses.clearandopen.com, as well as many other courses. Speaking of courses... I want to tell you about the upcoming course for Clear and Open's 2020 summer quarter. It's called Clear Thinking 2 Paradigmatic Analysis. It begins July 2nd and runs nine weeks. For human beings, results are the consequences of actions. And actions stem from conscious intentions. But where do our intentions come from? Have you ever thought about that? Intentions come from often unconscious motives driven by our largely unconscious paradigm. Your paradigm is your picture of what life is, why we're here, the cause of human suffering, the path to end that suffering, and based on all of that, what's good and what's bad in any moment. All human beings operate inside a paradigm. Most of them are oblivious to it. The result is their incoherent patchwork values cause them to live confused and painful lives. And when a person cannot see their own paradigm, they also cannot see another's, which results in unnecessary conflict, disappointment, and breached trust. People constantly tell you about their deepest values and beliefs if you know how to listen. Often they tell you things they don't even want you to know. This information is invaluable when deciding who to trust and how much and with what, and critical in leadership and management. This course reveals one of my most treasured secrets, if you will, I use paradigmatic analysis constantly. It's one of the ways I shock people by seeing dysfunctional business themes in minutes that take some of my colleagues years. This course, if you take it seriously, will make you the smartest person in the room. This is both a promise and a warning because that status comes with it a price. Everything does. For more information and registration, go to courses.clearandopen.com and look for Clear Thinking 2. Clear and Open Dojo members get access to the live course starting July 2nd. If you like these podcasts, consider becoming a member to take your growth to the next level. Thanks so much for listening. Let's dive in. Earlier, you were saying that you lose parts of yourself 
that you may or may not want to lose. What are some good examples of what you're talking about? What are some sure. Other- okay. Yeah, I can speak to that. I occasionally do speak to um, the, how my mind blanks out sometimes entirely these days. Yeah, as an example of what happens through meditation. But it's the same kind of thing. So I have a really sharp mind, but it's significantly been used as a compensation, as a defense mechanism. So when you, um, for anyone who is smart, and that's a lot of people, you can expect that the process of change is going to dull your mind a little bit because the mind is one of the most powerful defenses that our um, shadow has. Because when you're really in your mind, you can stop what you're feeling. So the, one of the earliest defenses we all use to just varying degrees, the smarter you are, the more you'd probably use it. Um, but everybody uses their mind as a way to not feel things. That's why we can't. We want to stop our thoughts, right? The incessant thinking thing. You ever think about what the purpose of that is? Right? When your mind does stop, there's a relief very often. But sometimes you start to feel things. It's like, whoa, this was there. Where did that come from? Oh, that was there all along. It's just that the music of your mind was turned up over the music of your heart. You know, that's the purpose of it. So while that rewiring is happening, when in the when you're in the process of uh, 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 decompens. Uh, how do I say this? When you're in the process of um, reconnecting your mind to your spirit, your soul, your heart, however you want to talk about it, it's sort of there's there's a rewiring that happens where it's not as readily available necessarily. I've had moments in meditation where I felt like, whoa, if I let go anymore, I think I'm going to lose my mind. What if I can't work? I've had that. You know, a bunch of times where, like, you know, it stopped to be able to even conceive of things. A total nonverbal thing starts to happen. It's it's hard to describe that realm of reality, but it's there, and you do feel like you're going to lose your mind. But it seems to always come back. So far, it has. It doesn't come back in the same way. But anyone who has a serious meditation path is going to come to that place: the, the fear of losing their mind. That's one example. How did I do? I address the question. Yeah, that was pretty good. Um, do you have any other examples? <laughs> examples are always a challenge for me. Um, uh, being funny, for example. Uh, I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a funny person, and I like that I can be funny. It's useful in this job. I like making people laugh. But there was a point in uh, my depression process where I saw that being funny was a way of making life interesting. Like I would go to parties and just be, I mean, I can be really funny. I've done stand up and stuff. If I really put my mind to it, I can be hilarious. But where it was coming from was a place of not wanting to deal with the, um, with the, the, the depressive mind's take on the boredom of reality what it, it saw as being totally boring. So I gave myself the assignment of not being funny for a month, which really was not easy because what I would have to do is every time a joke started to arise in me, I would just sort of let it go and then notice, oh, was there an experience or a feeling that I didn't want to experience or I don't want to experience in this moment? 
Like for example, you know, I'm at some party and I'm feeling bored. It's my, that was my old pattern. If I'm feeling bored at some party, I'll just become the life of the party to make it interesting for me. Which is usually what's going on when people do that. You know, we think of like, wow, they're so entertaining. Yeah, what's actually going on there? You know, for me, I'd say actually connecting with people on a deeper level or paying attention to my social anxiety or discomfort. That was what was really going on. But if I'm funny, I don't have to experience any of that. And then the worry comes up of like, well, what if the sole root of my humor is all compensatory and it's just about managing that? What if I'm never funny again? You know, what if I become so well adjusted to the social anxiety or the boredom, because nothing is really boring, that suddenly I don't need the humor anymore and it just falls away? I identify as a funny guy. I like being a funny guy. But what if it's gone? It came back. I'm not as funny as I used to be in those kinds of situations. And I probably couldn't be if I tried. But um, that's an example. Because with accountability, every stone must be unturned because anything could be a repressive dynamic. Anything could be in the way of you and the truth. So if you take this seriously, all aspects of your personality must be up for grabs. All of them. You have to be completely willing to lose any quality that you have because it might not be you and trust that what is you will come back. And it's quite scary sometimes and it's generally disorienting. But the reward is you get to be, you get to stand in all of your power. So, you know, uh, when you run into people after 20 years or something and they say something like you've totally changed or you're not the same as you were at university, you know, I had an old girlfriend from university was just looking at a bunch of photographs. She was going through my Facebook photographs and then she posted on one of them. Oh, that's the Catherine that I used to know. know. The rest of them, I don't know her. And it struck me as very interesting, her take on it. And I imagine it's because when we're at that age, we have so many facades on, right? So many hats you're wearing at different occasions. Yeah. But probably don't wear most of them anymore. Yeah. He's not recognizing all the things I have removed. Is that, is that a good example? It's trying to... Well, what, what it's an example of, I love that you bring it. It's a, what it's an example of is how other egos try to hold your ego accountable to staying the same. Right. Oh, that's the Catherine I know. Oh, you mean you want me to be the same as I was 20 years ago? Why on earth would you want that? You know, most of those, mostly you've improved, I'm sure, unless they have like a, you know, hey, you used to be more playful, you know, things people say about, you know, when you were younger. There's, there's, Pieces of that can that somehow sometimes can be helpful, but like when I talk to people who I don't, I'm mostly not friends with anyone from when I was a teenager, because what you can experience is there's this box that people put 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 each other in. When we were 17, you were this and I was this, and that's our ground of relating. So we have to be that in order to connect. This is this is why family reunions are so painful. Because that's what's going on. 
not in all families, but to some degree, the parents usually take a picture of their kid at like 16 or so, and they never get to be bigger than that, right? And then what the dynamic is the parents continue to treat you like you're a teenager and you're wanting to be seen as the adult you've become. You're proud of that. And then conflict happens because, you know, you know, one of the last times I saw my mother, she started getting on me about how skinny I was. Like she was the one who was feeding me, you know, like, what am I, 12? You're so skinny. Why don't you eat more? Like, wow, this person thinks that like there's some kind of authority about my physical health and, and how I should be eating. Amazing, right? That's that box. So the, the, the ego is always trying to turn the river of life and the river of who we are into a pond in their fear of the unknown. I'm this. I'm these 12 qualities. You're those 12 qualities. That's safe. Tomorrow, let's have it be the same. Right? That's the same thing this whole talk was about. Everybody wants to have their outside results be different while they stay the same person. You've changed. Well, okay, in a good way or a bad way? I don't know. You're not the same Catherine I knew. Thank God. <laughs> right? I'm so proud of that. I've completely changed many, many times over and I'm unrecognizable to the 16-year-old me. Because you know what? The 16-year-old me was an obnoxious, arrogant prick. I'm so glad I've changed that. And because that's growth. You know? So if you start to see it, there's these constant energetic handshakes that are going on where, yeah, I'm this way. Well, that's just who I am. Oh, so sure you are of who you are. Right? Like Luke, like what Yoda says to Luke, so sure you are of what can and cannot be. How is that serving you? You know, the, the greatest barrier to personal growth is the, is the self-image, the notions that you are who you think you are. Because that's the bedrock that the ego is based on. Does that speak to what you were bringing there? That's what I heard in it. Yeah, I think it's true. And I, I do agree with you in the, um, the family reunions. In our family, it's more the siblings, one or two siblings, put everyone in that spot. But I do think that, you know, I agree that there are some people that you grow up with that you divert, you grow different ways. But I still do think there are some that you can get back together after a long time. Absolutely. And kind of traverse together, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes it's parallel the whole way. Sometimes it's divergent and then back together. One of my best friends from high school, uh, we didn't talk for probably 10 or 15 years. It just sort of fell away. And now we talk like every week. Yeah. You know? And it went away and then back together. And that's the magic of it. It's like if you let go of all your ideas about how it should be or what is and actually look at what is, you know, like the next time you're with your family members, besides the shared DNA and shared blood, actually investigate and be curious about what actually connects us. Would I hang out with this person if we didn't have the shared history and shared DNA? Do we have similar interests, similar values? What actually connects us? And go looking for that. Find that. That gets you out of the trance of the family, out of the script of, you know, you know how your parents, my parents anyway, my father's been whistling the same six tunes since like 1950. (laughs) 
and still tells the same, like you can feel it when there's, when, when the bottom falls out of the conversation and it's awkward, someone will tell story number seven or story number 13 about how when I was six years old, I broke this chain, ceramic chain thing in this pool in Florida and it was my fault or his fault. And it's become this like, oh God, this again. Because they go back to the script right when the unknown shows up instead of being like, yeah, so like, what's it like to be you? That's what I want to ask my father. What's it like being you? I don't really know. He can't really answer the question, but that's what I want to know. I don't want to talk about the same crap we've been talking about my entire life. We've done that. You know? So you may find when you do that, a whole new emergent bunch of stuff you can talk about. Or you may find there's not much to talk about at all. Are you willing to find out the truth? You see? Are you willing to let it be whatever it is? Or do you need that relationship to be what you want it to be so much that you're not willing to even experiment? If you're not willing to, then there's no mystery why you're suffering when you hang out with that person, is there? (laughs) Because you're hanging out with them more than you ought to be or more than is real, you see? When you hang out with people that it's not really real to be hanging out with, life goes, hey, check it out. There's friction here. You know, there's a William S. Burroughs quote that says, if you feel after spending time with someone that you've lost a cord of plasma, avoid that person. <laughs> That's simple, right? But if you have all these ideas and obligations and you know, all of that, then you're just subjecting yourself to suffering. You know, My mother is high on the narcissist scale, high up on it. So the idea of flying 12 hours to spend a couple of days with my parents is not appealing to me because I'm going to feel like I've lost a quart of plasma every hour. You know, But I talk to her for an hour every month or two, and that's fine. What's true? What's true? I'll tell you, I lost a lot of plasma in my early 20s, giving a vein up to her needs. And that caused suffering. Until one day I went, wait a minute, my mother's emotional needs are not actually my responsibility. How about that? And then everything was different. Also changed my relationship with women forever. I'm interested in hearing some of the other uh, swim lanes in addition to judging that you see out there. So, oh, great. I love swim, swim lanes of how we cause ourselves suffering. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you describe judging and how oh, you judge, you're, you're in a car judging people. And, and, I, and I find myself, when you describe that, that hit a vein with me. I'm interested in hearing some of the other ones, which, which I imagine will hit veins with me as well. There are, oh, there are so many. Um, any, any should, you know, this is connected to Byron Katie's work that we did in Managing with Inquiry. Any should, anytime you should on yourself, or someone else, which can include a judgment, but it's, it's a bigger category than judgment. That's one of the most subtle and pervasive ones. That's why Byron Katie's work is so powerful. Because any notion of what should be is against reality. That's, you could say Byron Katie's work is about allowing yourself to be held accountable to reality. Because when you let go of what should be, there's just what is, you surrender to that, that's accountability. So yeah, Annie should about how people should be, who who you should be. I was just talking with a client yesterday about 
the subtle but pervasive should that we should make more money next year than we did this year, right? It's so obvious, right? Like, well, of course, next year should be more. And like, I start to notice, like, wow, I'm like 10 grand down from where I was last year. I might not make more this year than I did last year. And then I feel this kind of like anxiety, like, and I'm like, what? Well, where did I get the idea that it should be more? You know, the fact is, for what I do, I'm very near a limit. You can't grow a one on one coaching practice infinitely, not at all. There's a ceiling to that. So, it's that's an example, and they're so subtle. And, and so, like, one of the bars I hold for myself these days is any amount of frustration whatsoever, I, don't, I do not indulge. I don't hold frustration as a healthy emotion, it's a clue that I'm shooting somewhere. My clients should listen better, my, I should be making more money, uh, I should be more uh, up on the weeds in the yard. Uh, I shouldn't have a couple of days ago, I backed my lawnmower into a railing and broke the uh, mower height lever, which is going to cost like a hundred bucks to repair. I was like, crap, you know, I broke up like a half inch piece of steel. It just snapped off. Now I got to reach under the mower and get off the thing to be able to change the height of the blades. I shouldn't have done that. I laughed at myself. I'm looking at it and I feel that didn't happen. I didn't just do that. Like there's this, oh crap. No, I did have, that did happen. I did do that. Why did it happen? I don't know. Maybe I'm supposed to... Well, I've been wanting to get my handyman over here for a while to do a bunch of things. I guess now that's going to happen because I really need this fixed. You never know what journey it's going to take you on. But other examples, um, physical pain of, of any kind that's persistent, You know, dietary issues that people live with things like Constipation, for example, you know, that's a great example. People like will take pills for that instead of looking at what actually they're eating. My father has uh, eczema, that skin condition. Not too bad, but I'm convinced it's because of a dairy allergy, which is not uncommon. But he won't quit eating dairy because he loves it. And to me, that's not being accountable to life. You know, I had a client once who was getting chronic sinus infections and, uh, he was going to have his sinuses bored out manually to try to prevent it. And it was like a $25,000 elective surgery. And even then they said they thought it might not work. There was only a slim possibility that it would help. And I said, why don't you just quit eating dairy for a while? It's common that it clogs up the sinuses. It happens for me. Just give it a shot. Oh, but I love my danishes and my, the milk and my coffee. And I was like, look, man, you were talking about a $25,000 surgery. Just quit dairy for like, four to six weeks and see what happens. Clear to sinuses right up. He never had the surgery. The price he pays doesn't get to have his danishes anymore. No. Uh, other examples, um, lack of fulfilling relationships, lack of intimacy, um, other ways we cause ourselves suffering. I mean, the interface, where you're going to see it is always going to be in thoughts. Um, but uh, life structures for sure are worth looking at. You know, uh, being in loveless or sexless marriages, uh, living in a climate that doesn't suit you, wearing clothes you don't like. <laughs> I mean, it can be anything. Anything can cause suffering. Thanks for listening to Manage to Engage, the clear and open podcast. 
Join us next week when you'll be a little bit closer to who you're destined to be. Until then, know that Clear and Open is dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. If you want to help the show grow, I'd appreciate you leaving a rating and review on iTunes. All you have to do is open the Apple Podcasts app, view the full description of the episode, and click the link to leave a rating and review. Or you can go to clearandopen.com slash review, and it will bring you to the right place. If you're looking for more support on your journey, head over to clearandopen.com for even more tools, articles, and free resources. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now.